Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. invite you to turn in your copies of the scriptures with me this evening, your Bibles, the book of Matthew 27. In a moment we'll read <clears throat> verses 32 following. <clears throat> Today if you went to the Palatine Museum in Rome, Italy, you can see one of the oldest examples of graffiti. Estimated to be about from 200 AD, someone there scratched into this piece of plaster a crude and simple picture known as the Alexamenos Graffitico. It depicts a young man worshiping a donkey-headed figure who is being crucified on a cross. Just to make sure we get the point, underneath the picture is a description that reads, Alexamenos worships his God. It is thought to be a picture mocking this man, Alexamenos, for his faith in a crucified Savior. It's a picture meant to mock this man's Christianity and this man's Christ. Who would worship a crucified Savior? It's unthinkable to the world. It's a preposterous idea. It's so far out there that all that the world wants to do with this crazy idea is mock it. That's what you do with crazy and foolish ideas, isn't it? You mock them. The world does what Paul had said it would do in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That's why Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. The world has mocked, is mocking, and will continue to mock the cross until the return of Christ. But when did all of this mocking begin? Began as Jesus went to the cross. Even as He hung upon the cross, He was mocked. 
It was mocking that was done right to his face. Mocking that was done for everyone to hear. Mocking that was done behind behind his back. Mocking that scorned him, that despised him, that rejected him. And what are we to make of all of the mocking that Jesus received on the cross? Why did all of that have to happen? Was Jesus mocked on the cross to make us feel sorry for Jesus? Jesus, I'm really sorry that you had to go through all of that. I'm really sorry that you were mocked. Is it just to make us sad for Jesus? That there were those who would add insults to injury? Is it meant to make us mad? Make us mad at perhaps the Jewish leaders? They shouldn't have done that. They were cruel, they were mean, they were vile people. Who would dare treat Jesus like that? Or was the providentially ordained by God so that he would actually accomplish what the people were mocking him for. It is a redemptive reversal used by God to demonstrate his glory and his greatness and his power. And so when Jesus is mocked upon the cross, it's not for us to feel sorry for Jesus. It's for us to see the power of God that's at work in those words and that God would use those words in the mouths of human beings who are saying them to Jesus to deride him and despise him and mock him. He's using their own words to proclaim his truth. The truth that we need coming from mocking lips. So would you... Stand with me as I read here, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 32. I'm going to read through 54. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." Then two robbers were were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, 
there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to stand at the foot of the cross tonight. Teach us through your word about what you were doing as your son and our savior hung there suspended between heaven and earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus went to the cross according to the perfect will and plan of God the Father. From before the foundation of the world, God had this plan. Plan of redemption to save sinners from their sin. Plan to rescue his people. Plan to cleanse his bride and make her beautiful. And even before we come to Matthew 27, what Matthew is doing in these verses that we read is he's drawing our minds back to the Old Testament. He's drawing our minds to what's already been written. He's drawing our minds particularly to highlight one psalm, Psalm 22. And he says, everything that you are seeing here take place, everything that is going on while Jesus is on the cross, all of this was foretold in Psalm 22. It was there that David spoke of his own suffering and his own anguish and what he was going through and how David's suffering became the pattern for his offspring. And that was fulfilled in his final offspring, the final son of David, the last king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Matthew beautifully opens up to us this scene, saying to us all the while, this is exactly what God had promised he would do. This salvation was coming through suffering and anguish and hardship and difficulty.
What is happening to Jesus on the cross is no accident. It's what was exactly supposed to happen. And as we come to these verses in verse 32, Jesus has already been tried. He's already been delivered over to be crucified. He's already been beaten by the Roman guards and soldiers as they mocked him as the king. And now Jesus is on the final journey to reach his destination and is so badly beaten, so horrendous, all strength is now gone. Usually the criminals were made to carry their own crosses. Jesus had no strength to carry his cross. And so they found this man of Cyrene, Simon by name. We know his two sons from other places in Scripture. They're known by the church. Simon wasn't asked, would you like to carry Christ's cross? Simon was compelled or forced or made to carry Christ's cross. And so he took the cross of Christ upon his shoulders, most likely being that cross beam where Jesus' two hands would be nailed shortly. He took that cross beam upon his back. Probably an event in Simon's life that he would never forget. They come to this place named Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, either because it's a place that looked like a skull or because it was a place of many executions. The Roman guards take Jesus there and they try to give him a drink. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. They mix this wine together and this gall together and some think that it's a way for them to numb the pain. And it might have been a common way to numb the pain for the people who are being executed. It could be that the this offering of drink was also just to mock Jesus. That they were supposed to offer him one last refreshing drink, but they had mixed it with gall so that it was undrinkable. But there's still one other option. Some think that perhaps this wine mixed with gall would have actually been poisonous. And if that was the case, you can think about what the Roman soldiers were doing. Here's one last opportunity, Jesus, to take a way out. Drink the poison. End it already. You don't have to go to the cross. Whatever the case, Jesus refused. He tasted it, but he would not drink it. And so they crucified him, nailing his hands and his feet into the wood, most likely leaving Jesus naked or just with a loincloth to cover him all this led to greater shame before the eyes of the watching crowd and then the guards divided his garments among themselves by casting lots to fulfill Psalm 22 again. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And then they sit down to watch until the Savior, Jesus Christ, is dead. And then Matthew does something interesting. He begins then to relay the mocking that Jesus receives upon the cross, the mocking that Jesus endured. 
And we see four different ways that Jesus was mocked here as we make our way through these verses. First, on the cross, Jesus was mocked for his claim to how he related to the people. Above him was nailed a placard that read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The sign that was meant to mock him actually told the truth. Here is the Word of God in the flesh who came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. This was how he really related to his people. He was their king. A few days earlier, as we discussed last Sunday, Jesus had just ridden into Jerusalem as the humble king. He was hailed as the Messiah. The crowd shouted, Hosanna. Jesus was their king, but they had rejected their king. They did not want a divine king. They did not want a king from God. They did not want a king that was God. They wanted a king like all of the other nations. They wanted a king of their own choosing and of their own making. They wanted a king where they could do whatever was right in their own eyes. And Matthew sets this up, this side of crucifixion, as a throne room. Do you see that there? Look at this, verse 37 and 38. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then what happens? Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. We see this depicted often, don't we? The three crosses, one in the middle, one on either side. Have you ever stopped to think, why did they put two robbers next to Jesus, one on his right and one on his left? The last time that Matthew refers to someone being on the right and the left of Jesus is when two disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, give us a prominent place in your kingdom. Let us sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand. And what does Jesus say? It's been prepared for those who have been chosen. But if you want to be great in the kingdom, the first will be last. The last will be first. So what are the Roman guards doing? They are setting up a mocking play for the world to see. Here is your king, the king of the Jews, on his throne. And who is his right-hand man? And who is his left-hand man? Thieves, robbers, terrorists, insurrectionists. Those are the people who are ruling for this great king. Is that who you want to be your king? It's meant to be another source of mockery. They mock Jesus by claiming his reign is a reign of terror and of bloodshed and of destruction. They mock him by not attributing his kingdom and his kingship to God, but as a kingdom and a rule that is anti-God. 
But what better place to see the rule of Christ than from the cross itself? A king who sacrificially dies in the place of who? Of sinners, of rebels, of the ungodly, of robbers and murderers and terrorists, of insurrectionists. Who are those who are really on Jesus' right hand and on his left? Who are those who are ruling and reigning with Jesus? It is sinners who have been saved by God's grace. It's sinners who have been saved by the sacrifice of their king. And so while the Roman guards, I believe, tried to mock Jesus with this scene, it actually tells the truth about what the kingdom of God actually looks like. A king who gives his life as a ransom for many. A king whose crown is a crown of thorns, but through his suffering, through death on a, cro- on a cross, brings about a greater glory. This is the king that we need. A king who welcomes us, people who are sinners in need of a Savior who welcomes us into his kingdom. On the cross, Jesus was also mocked for his claim to reform worship. You see this here, don't you? In verse 40, they're wagging their heads at Jesus. They're deriding him. They are saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You made this great claim, Jesus. How are you going to do that? Here you are dying on a cross. But what do we know about Jesus' claim? He would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He wasn't talking about a building. He wasn't talking about a place or location. He was talking about his own body. Christ was dying, and as these people said these words, they were saying what they were seeing with their own eyes. The temple is being destroyed, and you don't have eyes to see it. The only way they claimed for Jesus to save the temple, Jesus, you care about worship, Jesus, you want to make a way for people to worship God? The only way for you to save the temple and reform worship is to save yourself. Come down off the cross. But it was through his death that right worship would be established. And then look at what they say. If you are the Son of God, does that ring a bell in our ears? What did the serpent say? What did Satan say to Jesus in the wilderness? Jesus, if you are the Son of God. How similar the temptation is in the mouths of these people. You can avoid suffering. You can avoid the cross. You can avoid death. Jesus, you don't have to do it. If you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. 
but Jesus' death reforms worship as a result of his death. And we see this because Matthew brings us back to it. Verse 51, what happens? Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There it is, temple reform. There it is, reforming worship. There it is, now full access for those who put their faith and trust in God, they have access now into the Holy of Holies, into the holy presence of God where they can worship Him. And so Jesus reforms worship through His death by tearing down that curtain. But the third way in which Jesus was mocked, on the cross, Jesus was mocked for His claim to redeem others. Look at verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Here now we've moved from the general public that were mocking Jesus to now it's these Jewish leaders who are mocking Jesus. And they try to invalidate his saving actions. They know that he's done many miracles, they know that these, in a sense, saved people. But now they're saying, Jesus, if you don't save yourself, all of that other saving activity that you did is invalidated. It's no good. How can you claim to save other people if you can't even save yourself? But Jesus was dying to save people. He was redeeming the lost and dying, those who were trapped in the domain of darkness. He is the Savior. And then what do they do? They call into question his kingship. They say, the only way, Jesus, that you can validate your kingship is if you come down again off of the cross, God's true king would not be cursed by hanging on a cross. Show yourself that you are God's blessed king, Jesus, and come down off the cross. And then look at what they have the nerve to do. <laughs> Verse 42. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Jesus, it's your fault that we don't believe in you. You come down from the cross, we'll believe. Don't come down the cross, we're not going to believe in you. Jesus, it's your fault that we don't believe in you. And dear brothers and sisters, how many in our world might have this kind of view towards Jesus? It's Jesus' problem. It's not my problem. But here's the truth. If Jesus came down from the cross, there would be no one worthy of our belief. If Jesus stepped down of, off of that cross, he would not deserve to be the object of our faith because he would be just like us. Because that's what we would do. We would come down off the cross, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you? If you had the power to come down off of the cross as you were being crucified, wouldn't you take that opportunity? Wouldn't you do it? But Jesus proved himself to be the king, proved himself to be worthy of our belief by staying on the cross. He is 
the worthy object of our faith. And finally, on the cross, Jesus mocked for his claim to how he related to God. Before I get to that, let me just rewind for one second because I forgot something. We saw that Jesus reformed worship and then what happened? The temple and the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Jesus showed himself to be the Savior, the Redeemer of his people. And what happens after it says that the curtain of temple is torn in two? People are resurrected from the dead. People come out of the tombs. Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. He is the one who alone can give new life. And Matthew shows us that in verses 52 and 53. Okay, now finally. On the cross, Jesus was mocked for his claim to how he related to God. We come to verse 43 in our text. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Here is Psalm 22, verse 8, on the lips of the Jewish leaders. Is he really God's man? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really God's son? Then God will save him. Let God deliver him if he is who he says he is. God will demonstrate his delight by delivering him from the cross. But what did we read in Isaiah 53? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It wouldn't be Christ's rescue from the cross that proves that he is the Son of God. In fact, it was that he remained on the cross that proved that he was the Son of God. Here is the reversal that comes then. So we've seen the curtain torn in two. We've seen dead bodies raised from the dead. And then what happens in verse 54? The centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place. And they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It took Jesus' death to make this centurion and these Roman soldiers proclaim the truth about who Jesus was. After all of the other mocking, after all of the other reviling, here is this faith. A faith that John talks about in 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So what was God doing as Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, 
died there on that cross. It was a testimony. All who believes in this Son, who is life, will have life. And whoever believes in this Son will not be put to shame. What a work Jesus does in all those who put their faith and trust in him. Forgives sin. Rescues us from our miserable state. Draws us into his marvelous light. Wraps his arms around us as those who are now are a part of the family of God. Gives us eternal life. And what a 180 that's happened in the lives of those who believe. We sing about this 180 sometimes in that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, when we say, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We once were those whose mocking voice was right there with these other mockers. But Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin. He's purchased us by his blood. And he's made us to see his glory. All of that through the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We ask that you would use it in our hearts and lives. Thank you for the cross. What Christ has done for us. It was finished on that cross. There's nothing left for us to do. There's no work for us to do. Christ accomplished the work of salvation and now he calls on us to turn from our sin and to put our faith and trust in him as the one who saves us who makes us from no longer being enemies of God being your people being your sons and daughters Father I pray that we would see the great grace that has come to us at the cross tonight and that we would rejoice even in the cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.